Hi, and thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Rage Podcast. I'm your host, Mikla Parker. On today's episode, we will be talking to Dr. Linda E. Mendez Barrientos. Born and raised in Nicaragua, she earned her PhD in ecology from the University of California, Davis, and holds two master's degrees, one in water management from Wagenhagen University in the Netherlands, and the other in tropical agrarian systems from Montpellier, sub-Argo in France. She also is the recipient of a number of prestigious and competitive awards, including the National Science Foundation, or NSF Graduate Research Fellow, the NSF Integrated Graduate Education and Research Traineeship, and the European Commission Agris Mundus Scholarship. To date, her work has been published in Society and Natural Resources, Ecology and Society, Water Policy, and the International Journal of Water Resources Development. Before academia, she also served as the Environmental Policy Analyst for several years with the Environmental Defense Fund. Dr. Linda E. Mendez Barrientos is also the founder of S2E, Science to Empower, environmental justice initiative that leverages data and innovative research to empower those at the forefront of environmental crises. Through collaboration among communities, advocates, and scientists, S2E aims to co-create a global network to monitor environmental injustices, facilitate environmental accountability, and human rights protection, and increase the participation of diverse and historically excluded voices in the decisions that define new sustainable trajectories. I want to thank Dr. Linda E. Mendez Barrientos for taking the time to speak with me regarding her work and research. So let's get into our great conversation. So my name is Linda Mendez Barrientos. I'm a professor at the Joseph Corbo School of International Studies with the University of Denver, and I previously did my PhD at the University of California, Davis, and my work is about uh, environmental governance, looking at power asymmetries and inequality and how they shape uh, policy processes. I teach uh, global environmental governance, I'm teaching water policy this summer, and I also teach uh, environmental justice for grad and undergrad. What are the biggest challenges you have faced in the work around equitable water governance and clean water access? So I do apply science. Basically, around the world, water insecurity is a prominent issue. People do not have access to safe and affordable and reliable drinking water. My work both deals with water insecurity, but also with irrigated agricultural water. And so the challenges with water governance or with water scarcity its governance. We have climatological and hydrological scarcities that are being exacerbated with climate change, but we also have socially constructed scarcities due to, you know, inequality in the distribution of water and how we at times over allocate existing water supply. And, you know, in the past, we haven't done that thinking about diversity of communities. I'm going to give you an example. When the Colorado River Basin was distributed among the seven states in the U.S., um, Native American tribes were not even citizens, considered citizens of the U.S. So they were left out of, you know, the compact agreement, that's a name, but it's basically a document, an agreement among the states where they basically divided the water among themselves without thinking about Mexico 
and without thinking about Native American trials. And so we have that document is the basis of how we manage water in the Colorado River, and it has been there since 1922. And to this day, we there's like this path dependency, historical path dependency that where we built our governance systems from that go back to you know Western settled colonialism, the development of the states, you know, at times when we had slavery or we were not thinking about you know equity and inclusion of and just bringing water in sufficient quantity and quality for all Americans basically and species so there are many things different values back then and the problem is that governance today built from those foundational legislations and documents and you know allocations so basically disadvantaged communities in the environment are inherently at a disadvantage when it comes to water rights when it comes to getting a share of the water so that they so that we can sustain a diversity of ecosystem but also a diversity of communities so my work basically looks at the different reforms institutional reforms that aim at that take on that challenge and aim aim at either managing water sustainably and introducing different mechanisms and incentives and at times regulations so that we can do a better use of water that aligns with our 21st century values. But also have, I'm also, I've looked at equitable reforms, like reforms that are specifically trying to address or redress the heritage of slavery, segregation, and, you know, just the racial disparities that have been created along the way when it comes to land and water access. Thank you for that synopsis of all your beautiful work. I know there's so much more to unpack within that. And I think you brought up some really great points into segueing questions that I have. So I think what I want to ask next is, as water quickly grows scarce globally, Mm -hmm. what are the needs within policy to better address inequities while also providing clean water access to all those different identities you were talking about? There's a lot of people that do not have access to water in the global north and the global south, including the U.S. So I think immediate needs right now is to make sure that we extend the water security to a majority of our population because there's a lot of people um, that depend on water or groundwater and they do not have access to water. Whether there's drought or not, that's like the status quo. There's many communities that have indefinite droughts, basically, like they do not have access to water. So I think that will be a first need. There's a need to build a lot of infrastructure so that those communities have access. So I think that's probably the top of the agenda with the current administration, the need to extend water security for a lot of the populations who have been neglected in the past. But there's also a lot of environmental needs of the ecosystems that depend on groundwater and water that are at risk right now. So I think that's the top two needs that we have. And doing that and extending those services to previously disenfranchised people that do not have access while maintaining, you know, irrigated agriculture and water for industry and other protected interests. 
as I was doing research on some of your work, I could see some of the initiatives you've done with farmers, especially farmers who have access to groundwater or need access to groundwater and aren't getting it, or the government is specifically targeting those populations from that access to water in order to provide it elsewhere. And I think that you bring up great points. Going into that, I wanted to ask, at the iRise Climate Justice Roundtable, you talked a lot about the impact of water on your life specifically. And one thing that really stuck with me was your connection to water, starting with your experiences with swimming post-Civil War in Nicaragua and your experiences with fresh lagoon water. And I wanted to ask, what does protecting water now as you are older mean to you? Wow. <laughs> and I didn't realize you've done research, so I appreciate it. But I don't know, like water is everything for me, you know, like my whole work is about water. So, I mean, I'm a privileged person now, right? Growing up, I, I think I didn't have the privilege that I have now. So at the time, you know, when I was, when I shared at the IRAs event, you know, I was describing a moment in my life where I was a child and there were no parks. There was not even ice cream. You know, there was not, there's very little shops in a country coming out of a 10 year civil war. And so growing up in that environment, there were very few things to do. So water and swimming was like a refuge, right? For a child that otherwise outside of that environment or that opportunity to be immersed in, in water, I you know, I was surrounded by poverty and just like not many fun things to do as a kid. But I now, you know, I'm a very privileged person. You know, I'm a professor at R1 University. I, you know, I basically I have access to a number of things that I didn't have access to before. And probably, you know, I have more access to a number of things that a lot of people in the United States do not have access. Even though I myself am not even a citizen, right, in this country. My priority, I guess, in my work is striving to create space so that people have just basic, a basic human right. The bar is so low that we cannot think about recreation. Like, I cannot think about recreation if we don't have a basic human right to water being met for, an, you know, for a lot of disadvantaged communities in the United States. So it's very difficult to think now as an adult about a time when I was and what it meant for me personally to to have access to fresh water, you know, for recreation, while at the same time, you know, being in a household that suffered from water insecurity, right? So that, that, those are different paradoxes, you used that word before, or the contradictions between, you know, a society that has so much water, like in my case in Nicaragua, access to go swim in a lake or a river, while at the same time, you know, we suffer. Well, well, we had all of that, you know, beautiful and extensive opportunities to recreate water insecurity was and continues to be a very important issue for those communities. I think water for me, when I think about water now, it's, you know, it's, it's my job. It's part of my job. And, 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 and I'm not thinking necessarily about recreation because we, we, we don't even have you know, in the United States, we don't even have insured that all of the American, all the Americans enjoy reliable, safe, and affordable drinking water. So it's very hard to think about recreation when the very basic needs have, have not been met. And I think that's uh, the basis of the question, right? Because there's this beauty of being a child and the innocence of 
enjoying something and even when you were enjoying it not understanding the beauty of what you had and even when you were in that moment being privileged even if you weren't I think now even more it's just like another recollecting of where you are in life and your experience with water and how you've always been connected to what it's given you and the safety around it as well as like wanting to provide that access to others. And I think also in your research, from what I've noticed is that you've always had this idea of we need to all have it and had like we talked about the paradox of we all need it. And yet there are people who are not putting it at the forefront of even when we talk about climate justice, for example, you know, to talk about these communities that no one wants to go and talk to. And specifically within your work in California, I really noticed that as well. And so could you talk a little bit about your experience with climate justice and water reform in California as well? Yeah, I just want to uh, highlight something that you say that it's an issue with the environmental sustainability in general. So for the longest time, I think, you know, the fields of political science, environmental policy, where they depolitize, they they brought the politics out of the environment. I think, you know, in the United States, for example, the major environmental nonprofits and the the environmental movement has, you know, very, at times, racist roots and just a history of protecting nature and the wilderness outside from, you know, the everyday practice or everyday environment in urban cities, uh, access to parks. And so as a result of, you know, this, you know, many decades now of this emphasis of, you know, the national park system protection, the protection of wilderness, protection of, you know, endangered wildlife and charismatic and exotic wildlife, all of it outside of the everyday practice of the environment, basically, is like a divorce between the national park system or the mountains and what is you know rural and wild from questions of air quality that affect disproportionately environmental justice communities and people of color and just in general disenfranchised communities issues of you know even shade and you know density of trees in cities and what neighborhoods get to have you know, access to green space and which ones don't, and the ones that don't, if we do any policies around it, there's a risk of gentrification around those neighborhoods. So it's a very, very complex issues, right? You know, we've been talking about water, of course, right? Water access. So if you look at, you know, many, we can talk about many issues. It's been like the segregated movements, you know, one, which is the environmental justice movement, thinking about air quality and how to, you know, how to, improve air quality around disproportionately affected communities, access, you know, water access, you know, green space access, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas, you know, white privileged environmental nonprofits or the, you know, the environmental movement, the mainstream environmental movement, which, you know, in, has historically been represented where people are where they are predominantly white and the, the issues that they care about are predominantly white issues. So you can, you know, just a little bit of history around that, you know. So there we are, you know, right now, you know, we have this, to this day, this segregation between environmental sustainability within different communities. And, you know, I think you're right to say, you know, environmental sustainability is a social justice issue. Unfortunately, 
to this day, the movements have been segregated. They, they focus on different issues. They attend to a specific communities. And within all of that talk about climate change exacerbating our life and potentially destroying our planet the way, uh, the way we know it so far, you know, climate justice has become called, you know, within and against, you know, there's this famous paper, like within, against, and beyond the state or, you know, this movement as I see it. So the mainstream climate change advocates who talk about, you know, the science, they, they have focused a lot on the science and proving, you know, the fact that, you know, the earth is warming, which is a great service for everyone to be focusing on that. But from there, taking the climate justice movement is trying to center attention to the people that are going to be the most disproportionately affected by climate change impacts, but also trying to connect the dots of how power and economic interests work and that it doesn't matter how good or great communicator, science communicator you are and how many facts you bring to the table year and year around, if we do not connect what is causing climate change with the economic and political interests that prevent policy from ever happening. So I think that's a great contribution as well from the climate justice movement. Unfortunately, to this day, I feel like it's like these two, you know, adversarial groups around. I completely agree. I think it's just like how I'm learning in my policy classes now about the policy paradox of how everyone wants to help fight these issues and yet people are in competition to actually get them to happen rather than helping to build those connections to make them intentional and transformative and the longevity of it as well. So I really appreciate what you said. And one more question though, I did see in late 2021, you and more than 400 academics, researchers, and political scientists signed one of the open letters calling for Nicaragua's government and leader Daniel Ortega to release opposition presidential candidates and other political prisoners. As someone born and raised in Nicaragua, I wanted to ask, how are your identities, international studies background, public policy uh, expertise, as well as your advocacy knowledge, helped play a role in you fighting for democracy and human rights globally? It's very complicated situation. Uh, my family had to leave the country, like many people. I don't know how, how what are the latest numbers, but we're talking about hundreds of thousands of people that have left the country between 2018 and to the present. And you know, the majority of the people have gone to other Central American countries, uh, Spain and the U.S. And so I think it's a very difficult situation. The majority of the people are in exile now, due to you know security and safety reasons. So I, I would say there's very little political advocacy that anyone can do. There was a time when there was a lot happening, but you know the government uh, used violence and oppression to control the protesting and the different insurrection movements that were sparkling in the country. So I wouldn't call myself an advocate in the fight for democracy of my own country right now, because that's not what I do, you know, every day in my life. Unfortunately, I feel like I, you know, I have to choose how do I allocate my time and I'm an academic and, you know, I'm, I, I also have lived outside of Nicaragua since I'm 16 years old. And for a very long time ago, I decided that I wanted to make contributions where I lived. 
and I didn't want to be a privileged Latin American living in the U.S. advocating for things back home when I'm not there myself, you know, at the forefront doing the different things and also suffering from, you know, not having a voice and all the different things that Nicaraguans have to deal with now. So, you know, even before this happened for a long time, I've always decided that I wanted to make contributions wherever I lived and worked. And it's a little thing, right? Like it's the least that you can do when you don't live there. I'm not in the streets protesting or organizing protests. And, you know, it's, right. it's, it's a very different role from being there and putting, putting your body and your blood and your life on the front line than signing very comfortably from the United States of America, a letter, right? To in support. So I think that's the bare minimum that any academic or, you know, person that knows what's happening down there could do. But yeah, I don't have, unfortunately, done work so far in Nicaragua. Uh, you know, my work is in South Africa, Ecuador. Now I have an environmental justice project in Central America, but it's, it's regional. And of course, the U.S., the American Southwest. So yeah, I, I don't identify myself as uh, an advocate for Nicaragua, I think there's very few opportunities for any one person to do that safely without putting your family at risk. And, and so, yeah, I've decided to do the, you know, what I think it could be the most productive things with my time, given the limitations that, you know, that are available. Thank you again. Before yeah. we leave, I did want to give you the space. If you do have any social medias, websites, or anything you would like to link to our audience, yeah, so I am actually, <laughs> I'm very late on everything in my life these days, but I am building a website for this initiative called Science to Empower. It's an environmental justice initiative. So we have, we only have a Twitter handle, which we never use, but the website is coming up. My Twitter handle is Rio de Sangre. It means blood that runs through a river in Spanish. But yeah, look it up. I'm going to be probably advertising more about all of the SQE happenings. But yeah, it's SQE Science to Empower, if you can find it in Twitter and we're about to launch our website pretty soon. Well, thank you again for making time for me. You're incredible and thank you for your work. As we conclude yet another great episode of the Rage podcast, I want to continue sharing with y'all an excerpt from a reading. Today, the poem is called Flint by Roger Bridges, Ishan Francis, Alexis Harvey, Danielle Horton, and Kayla Shannon. They wrote Flint back in 2013 when they were part of Raise It Up, a youth arts organization based in Flint, where they performed on a slam poetry team with other young poets in the city. The poem reads, pay for your poison, the girls and the boys and the city can't drink. Lead altering the way we think. Futures gone in a blink. A mother who has children dying in her arms. Her name is Flint. She has lived a long and tiring life. Her children sucking all the nutrients out of her. She is wearing thin. But the streets got her back. They are what define her. What make her whole. She was young once. Lively, ambitious booming. She was beautiful. Everyone loved her, clung to her like flock. She had everything, money, 
resources, people who worked for her. And then she lost it all. A goodbye kiss. Policy always tries to pimp her out, misuse and abuse her. But she just cracks a smile at them. Because she's raising warriors. We've got her streets running through our veins. When you're shaped from concrete and tar, you learn to bury your feet. The dirt you stand in becomes your only friend when the city doesn't love you. Living in Flint is being surrounded by shackles and ignoring the restrictions just to carry on. Where I'm from, politicians fill their pockets, work from the lens of dollar signs, see currency before human lives, blinded by green faces, racist. Where I come from, the stretch of Saginaw, streets is 60% black, 60% tar, 60% stuck. Someone show me the blueprint for uprooting this city's carotid bloodline. I wonder how Schneider is spending his Sunday. While we stand in solidarity against the poisoning of my people, he relaxes in his Ann Arbor house passing bills for the exact crime he committed in Flint. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Rage Podcast. The Rage Podcast is the product of the Interdisciplinary Research Institute for the Study of Inequality, or IRISE. To learn more about what we do, please visit our website at irise.du.edu. To ensure that we bring you quality content, please be sure to subscribe, follow, like, or share on the platform you are listening to us on. For Rage opportunities and updates, please follow our social media pages. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at The Rage Podcast, all one word. Thank you again for listening to another episode of The Rage. And remember, every day you are breathing, you are winning. Stay safe and you are loved.